This message by Terry Virgo was recorded at the New Frontiers together on a mission conference 2008 in Brighton. Your wonderful faithfulness. So grateful to you for all the commitment that's expressed there. So thrilled knowing so many of the churches are very involved in their own building programs, hugely stretched projects that are coming out of growth locally, all sorts of diverse commitments that are taking us into all sorts of uh, steps of faith. So I know that you are again and again being stirred to give, and so to give such vast amounts of money here, we're very, very deeply grateful to you. I want to personally thank you for your trust in putting that kind of money in our hands. We promise you we will serve you and serve the Lord with real fear and reverence, knowing we give account to him ultimately for what we do with it. I want to thank you so much. Thank you for the tremendous love expressed. Certainly I felt that deeply and wonderfully, uh, overwhelmingly, I guess, yesterday. I'm so grateful for that personal affection and uh, I can't tell you how much it means to me and expressed in this tangible way also. Thank you with all my heart. Thank you for your loyalty and faithfulness. Uh, yes, we can say over decades now. And uh, so grateful for that. So grateful for all that we've learned here. I just want to say once again, uh, my appreciation to Simon Brading, Simon Brading, and uh, the band. I'm especially grateful to them, and Fatfish and others that have augmented the band. Uh, they've done a tremendous job for us, and especially with Kate dropping out so late for Evan and the tremendous fun and joy that he brings to us uh, for last night's celebration. Uh, we are hugely blessed by such tremendous musicians. Don't forget, there's great albums downstairs. Lou Fellingham's recent album is a delight. Uh, don't miss the opportunity to go on your way with some of those songs already playing, maybe in your car on the way home uh, as you get the CD. So thanks again, guys, for all that you did. You're lost in the darkness out there for me, probably over there somewhere. But yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I know it's a terrific challenge. I'd like to take you again then into the book of Acts, as I uh, said I would on the first day. I felt God spoke to me very specifically and just said, Stephen and Philip to me. And uh, Although it was without any kind of context, I think I knew which Stephen and Philip uh, to look for. And uh, we began on the first day looking at Stephen. I'm just going to pick up again the context uh, where God was doing phenomenal things. The church is growing. And this first step of appointing men who will take responsibility uh, for that uh, growth in terms of the social needs among the people. And uh, as a result of that, we're told that the word of God kept on spreading in chapter 6. And I want to jump down now to chapter 8, which of course follows all that happened as a result of Stephen's martyrdom. Acts uh, chapter 8, verse 4, we'll kick in at. Therefore, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began preaching Christ to them. The crowds, with one accord, were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting, 
with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Then looking on to... uh, No, we read on. Sorry, I read on a little longer. Now, there was a man named Simon who formerly was practicing magic in the city and astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. And they all, from smallest to greatest, were giving attention to him, saying, this man is what is called the great power of God. And they were giving him attention because he had for a long time astonished them with his magic arts. But when they believed Philip, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. Even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, continued on with Philip. And as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, he was constantly amazed. Now when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They'd simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they began laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Kondake, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. And he'd come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, and sitting in his chariot, was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. And Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet, and said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, well, how could I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he doesn't open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate to his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The eunuch answered Philip and said, Please tell me, of whom does the prophet say this, of himself or someone else? And Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water. And Philip, as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him, but went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he passed through, he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Caesarea. Father, thank you for this account of this early church. We thank you, Lord, for the example of this man full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom, full of grace. And Father, we ask you right now, please, for your supernatural help, 
But as we consider this hero of Scripture, you will motivate, stir, and direct us, Father, that we might go on our way aware of the challenge that lies before us, of the direction you want us to go. Please, Lord Jesus, would you come and be our teacher here? We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen. So, just to remind you, Stephen and Philip, we were originally introduced to as men who are serving a broader cause. They're playing their part in a rapidly advancing church and doing behind-the-scenes activity. As I look at the story of Philip, I can see almost like two phases in his life. There's a first half and then a second half. And actually, God spoke to us on this platform some time back saying that there was going to come a kind of second half in our experience. I believe we've begun to see that. I believe even from much of the teaching we've been hearing here this week and even hearing from John Groves again earlier in the meeting, I do believe God is speaking to us more and more about this second phase, which we'll look at in a moment. But first of all, we are introduced to Philip, the only named evangelist in the New Testament in a kind of first half context. He's in a a kind of a domestic scene. He's looking after the social needs. Later we'll see him on a phenomenal outreaching evangelistic program. But we are introduced to the man in this other scene originally. And it's good for us to see how he conducted himself in what we might call the first half. There's some very important foundational things that have to be put into lives that will ultimately have public, visible ministry. If we're to be safe in the second half, there are principles to be taught in the first half. There are roots, foundational things that must be in place. And we see with Philip that that is exactly what is there about him. This evangelist, first of all, was known and appreciated in the church by the people. We often think of evangelists as loners. We see them kind of on their own. They had their own ministry. They had their title, evangelistic ministry. They're kind of loners. Uh, Maybe they have their private jet. Uh, It looks like Philip may have had something. It was only a a single-seater that he had as he uh, moved around. But here we see Philip really happy to be part of a situation where he is not isolated. He's not a guy who doesn't fit. And so he's left church to do evangelism. He really does fit. He's loved, he's valued, he's voted for by the people. They present him to the apostles to have the laying on of hands. So he's got a good reputation. Men of good reputation. So here this to-be evangelist is not just a guy who no one knows where he comes from. No one knows who he is. He's just a skillful platform man. No, no, this is a guy with a good reputation. He's loved by the church. When the church wants someone reliable who can manage things, look after things, Philip's name comes up. He is popular. He is honored. He's respected. He's seen as full of the Holy Spirit at a time when, to be honest, thousands of people are full of the Holy Spirit. But this guy is somehow exemplary. And uh, just to notice as an evangelist, he's not just full of gags. He's not just full of uh, salesmanship. He's full of the Holy Spirit. He stands out in that kind of a way. He's full of wisdom, willing to take responsibility. He's also a team player. He's happy to serve and release others, though he himself 
surely must already have been gifted by God. There's something in this guy that when we see a sort of breakout, he immediately goes for it. He's a gifted man, but he's willing not to push for his gift. He's willing to serve others. He's willing to take his place so that others can get on with the more public ministry. He's willing to be a team player. He's not someone saying, listen, I am very gifted. God wouldn't have given me this gift if he didn't want to use it. I demand to be recognized. I want to be seen for what God's made me to be. He's willing to take a a lower profile. He's willing to let others do what they feel stirred to do. He's willing to come behind. And you know, as we go on together, dear friends, as we go planting churches, as we go building, planting, moving, there's got to be that flexibility. There's got to be that willingness to take a place that we put God first. It's interesting to see that he learned this early. Later on, we're going to see when he is a man of some high profile, when he's got revival, he's got thousands responding to his preaching, paralyzed of being healed, people are pressing in to his preaching ministry. We see there... As the apostles of Jerusalem hear about the gospel coming into Samaria, they send Peter and John to make up what's lacking. There's a lack of Holy Spirit activity. There's a guy called Simon who's getting far too much profile in need of some apostolic wisdom here. And Philip doesn't say, hey, this is my patch. Hey, get out of here. I, I'm, this is what I've produced. Who do you think you are? I believe that early on, he received... An insight of the importance of being a team player. And you know, the earlier you can learn it, the better. It's so important for us as parents to, to teach our kids, hey, listen, be a team player. You're not going to train a child from early years and say, I want it, I want it, I want it. And you say, oh, what can you do? Just give it. No, no, no. We've got to train and teach and prepare So that children are learning. No, no, you don't insist on your own way. That's going to take work, dear friends, in a a, a, a generation that's giving up and saying, well, who can control? Who can do it? Just let them do their thing. No, character formation. Preparing kids for the kingdom so that when God begins to move, your kid fits in because, well, he and she, they know how to be good team players. They've learned at home that they just don't have their own way They're learning principles. We're spending time. We're teaching. We're loving. We're helping prepare them for the kingdom. So as early as possible, we're getting people to fit in where they're meant to fit in. And Philip is showing a beautiful attitude so that maturity is on display in his humility. You might say, what does a mature man look like? The Bible says that we're doing these things until we come to a mature man. So it says in Ephesians Chapter 4, there are apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors and teachers to equip the saints until we come to a mature man. What's your thought of a mature man? How about someone who says of him, knowing he had come from God, knowing he was going to God. That sounds like a mature man. He's not wondering about his identity. He's not wondering about his reputation. He's not fighting for himself. Knowing he comes from God. Knowing he's going to God. This is secure. That's a mature man. What does he do? He disrobes and washes the disciples' feet. This is a mature man. And beloved, building churches needs mature men and women. 
Real maturity. Biblical maturity. Maturity. Through love, serving one another. Literally means becoming one another's slaves. Through love, doing that. Through love, laying down your priority. Saying, okay, okay, I've got this gift, but we'll wait. I'm not pushing myself. I'm not going to try and make sure I get into that role. I'm not going to say, hey, why isn't my name on that list? Why haven't they asked me to play? Why haven't they asked me to fulfill my role? Hey, I fit, you know. And sometimes, oh, I'm not appreciated here. I'll go to another church where I'll be appreciated. Philip didn't have any of that. So, hey, we can build on this guy. We have to learn these things. to Say, okay, I'll wait. The Bible's full of characters like this. Men like Joseph who had such a vision of what God had called him to be. Such a calling on him. Such an awareness of God's favor on him. But it doesn't happen overnight. He's first of all going to be successful in Potiphar's house, in prison, sweeping up, doing stuff. But he was a successful man there. You don't get to be a successful man if you're resenting, why am I shut in? Wondering, when am I going to get free? When am I going to fly? No, it says he was a successful man in the limitation. And here Philip is recorded. He's doing a great task. It's not going to be his ultimate. It's the first half. It's that preparatory thing. Young guys and girls here immobilized. Let's learn to be servants. Let's learn to take our place. Let's learn to release people. Practical ways. All kinds of ways to release other people. Not just saying, hey, I've got this gift. Hey, God wouldn't have given me this gift if you didn't want to use it. Now, we just get into a place where we can release others. We find that beautiful attitude in Philip in this first half. So he is uh, full of the spirit, full of wisdom. He's a team player. And I just want to borrow something from the, his second half, really, about his household. We see it later on in uh, Caesarea and uh, Acts 21. He's got a consistent household. As I said, it comes from later in the story. It's kind of in the second half. Uh, or some of us have to learn there's a kind of third half later. But that's just for a few of us yet. But uh, here he is taken from a kind of second half image where he is in his household. Acts 21 and verse 9. It says this. He had four daughters who prophesied. It says that Paul's going to this house And uh, it's just a little cameo picture of Paul on that journey, on his way down to Jerusalem. And uh, he he comes to this home. He's he's kind of shut in with God. He's hearing warnings. It's everywhere he stops. People say, watch out. There's there's pressure ahead of you. There's there's pressure. There's a big calling on his life. And he stops in at Philip's household. By this time now, he's a family man. He's got four children. And he's got four daughters who prophesied. I often wondered what it was like for breakfast in that household. <laughs> Four daughters who prophesied. Just meditating on that lately, it's uh, saying quite a lot. This is not four daughters who are all alienated. This is not four daughters who uh, just were blown away by his evangelistic fervor. Couldn't relate to him. Oh, dad's off on some thing. Not alienated by his public persona being out of step with his private lifestyle. Not daughters who say, oh, if you knew him. Oh, yeah, we know about his public ministry, but hey, we have to live with him. Not four daughters uh, who are being ignored because, well, I'm a big public guy, so get on with life. No, no, these are four daughters who are doing very well. This is an outstanding 
testimony. They're not even forced into his evangelistic mold. It's not like, well, you're going to be like me. He's an evangelist. They become women who prophesy. They're not kids scared of the Holy Spirit. They're kids who felt at home feeling the nearness of the Holy Spirit. It's a good home to be in. A home where the Holy Spirit is respected, where they're taught to be sensitive, to listen to him, to fellowship with him. Ponder it. Four daughters who prophesy. There has to be a lot before that happens. There has to be a lot in terms of relationships among them. There has to be a real honoring of women in the home. For daughters who prophesy. Your sons and daughters shall prophesy, we're told in Acts 2. Men and women prophesying. What a home this is. It's so exemplary. And so here we find, uh, yeah, he's going to be a powerful evangelist. And by this time, this one I've kind of borrowed from later in the story, he has an exemplary home. And leaders here, come on, let's work on this. It's such a joy to have kids that you can be proud of. I want to testify that I am proud of my kids. That we can win that next generation. That we can see them come through sharing our heart. Longing to press through with God. Here's four daughters who prophesied. Here they are. Consistent then. Philip is consistent at home. He's got a good reputation in the church. This is the guy. Then suddenly it all changes. Suddenly his situation becomes what we have come to talk about first half, second half. God is moving on us, speaking to us about get ready for a new kind of a day dawning. Now, the way it happened here in the New Testament, we're told, was following Stephen's martyrdom, there was this massive scattering. It changed everything. Gamaliel had had some influence to kind of settle things down. There's a lot of hostility. Uh, the, the authorities are angry and furious with these people. And then uh, Gamaliel says, no, well, don't speak against it. And it kind of comes calm until the whole event with Stephen. And then the martyrdom, the killing, the kind of bloodletting. And suddenly, hey, all fury is let loose. And you know, there is a sovereignty of God factor in that, as we saw when we were looking at the story of Stephen. Even as in the Old Testament, we find in Genesis 11, God had expected the human race to fill the earth. That was his intention, that his glory should fill the earth. The human race made in the image and likeness of God, man with responsibility to bring dominion to the heaven, to the earth, to the nations, and stopping there at Babel. Not going, not, not going out to the nations, not going out to bring the representation of God. And God comes down and scatters them there in Genesis 11. You get a similar thing here in the New Testament. that They're, they're kind of just stationary, they're here, and God scatters them. This time not in judgment, but this time in pursuing those nations that have gone. God sent people, God scattered people, now God is going to scatter the gospel among all the nations. And so we find the scattering going on and Philip is immediately alive to the opportunity and he's making the most of the time. It's important for us to see he's not waiting for perfect circumstances. I believe he was filled with the knowledge of God's will. I think that's a strange prayer when Paul says, I'm praying for you that you might be filled with the knowledge 
of God's will. He could have expressed that other ways. He could have said, I, I pray you'll know. But somehow there's a, a being filled with knowledge, so filled with the knowledge of God's will that when circumstances suddenly go awry, it's not, well, what should I do? What? No, he's full of God's will. He's full of the gospel. He's a gospel intoxicated man. He's not waiting for the official strategy. He's not waiting to see what, what, what are we supposed to do? What's the instruction? Uh, are the apostles saying anything? How do we do this? No, they're scattered. And he buys into the opportunity. He goes with what God is doing. He, he's not looking. Sometimes someone says, I'm an evangelist, just puts a sticker on their door. Evangelist waits for the phone to ring. This guy isn't like that. He's on the way. He's going. He's going to share. He's going to take every opportunity to speak. And although these are refugees, we often think of lines of refugees. We see photographs on our television. We see movies, news. Sad, sad figures. But here you get these scattered people going with glad news, excellent news. Philip's going on that journey. I'm so impressed with what I've seen with New Covenants, having Rory and the guys here, how so many who have poured out of South Africa in recent years, they're planting churches everywhere. They are exemplary. They're just going and planting, going and planting, turning up in a town, a nation, saying, hey, we're here, some others here. We could start a church here. There's a, there's a kind of momentum that they have got hold of on the back of, well, there's a lot of movement in our nation. Our people are on the move a lot. Let's see what God's doing in that. And we need to be like that. When we think about places like Dubai, we need to realize international business. Hey, we could have, a, we could have an office there. We could be in Dubai. That could be part of our business. If you're in business, I want to encourage you more and more to think in this way. How can we open up? Where could we open up? Maybe we could open up in Dubai. Maybe we could have an office there. It's a good center to be in. Why? God's on the move. We can help fill out that church. We can help build more into it. You may say, well, I'm not a preacher. No, but you could be a businessman helping it to happen. And we need that kind of entrepreneurial thought. What can I do? How can I open up? Can I help this thing get started? Just going because God is opening a door to go. So here's a guy on the move, and it says, he went as a herald of the good news. They were going, speaking, talking. The word that's used concerning Philip is a, a, a more public word. He heralded the good news of Jesus. He didn't go to speak about the church. He didn't go to, to promote religion. He didn't go to talk about discussions of difficulties amongst Christians and Jews at the moment. He went to preach Christ. It's important for us, and the remaining time I've got with you this morning, I just want to say, what kind of Christ did he preach? What Christ? I expect you've seen, as I have, graffiti sometimes on posters. I remember seeing one uh, on the coastal road that just said, Christ is the answer. And someone had thought, oh, enough of this. And they wrote, what is the question? It's not enough just to make vague statements. What kind of Christ are we presenting? I want to just take you through some of the things that are so evident from the scripture of the kind of Christ that is being presented by Philip. First of all, a Jesus rooted in Old Testament revelation. Now, we don't often find guys going down the street these days just kind of reading Isaiah 53 out loud. 
Wouldn't it be nice if that was happening? You know, just in the bus and someone says, oh, I'm just reading Isaiah 53 here. Oh, great. And they just turn to you and say, who is this about? You think, oh, thank you, Jesus. You know, it's pretty, it's, it's pretty rare. It's pretty rare. But it's important for us to see that what he did was to preach the authentic story about Jesus. He didn't just talk about, do you have a gap in your life? He's talking about Jesus, and I think it's so hugely important for us to be centrally in Christ. Tim Keller says this, people are reacting to abstract theologizing. That's not grounded in the gospel and real history. He adds, this is not an abstract culture but a culture of story and image. People want to hear, what is it you believe? What is the story? What is it you've put your hope in? So let's not always just borrow from the culture. Let's be assured of the message we have, which is centered, first of all, as he speaks to this Ethiopian about Jesus and the cross. He's reading about a lamb being led to the slaughter, about to have his life removed. He's reading the classic Old Testament passage about Jesus, the one that's most often quoted, the one that's telling us about Jesus in the Old Testament. He's speaking clearly about Christ. And and from that very point, Philip can take hold of this Old Testament passage and immediately apply it to Jesus. He's so full of Jesus, they can see Jesus in the passage. We need to be able to tell people about Jesus from wherever we look in the scripture. But here's a classic passage. It's about his substitutionary death. It's about the atonement. We know that in our days, some are backing off, scared to focus there. For us, dear friends, we must focus there, we must preach the cross, we must be constantly setting the cross before people, we must make that our priority, not abandon that as our central theme. The horror of the cross. Some people have said, well, the Gospels don't say much about the cross, there's not much describing it, it kind of goes by it. I think perhaps we forget, the cross didn't need much describing in Bible days, crosses were very visible everywhere. It's the way the Romans imposed their authority on the nations. They were winning the world through the cross. They were just crucifying one after another. Roads filled with people crucified. They didn't have to describe it in the scriptures for their generation. They just said they crucified him. We need to have our eyes open to the horrors and the reality, not just the physical suffering, but somehow to break through a kind of film that comes over people's thinking when we say, well, he was crucified, because that's what it says in the Bible, there they crucified him. We need to look at, what does that mean? Paul says in Galatians 3, I publicly placarded Christ as crucified. I placarded it. I presented it to you in graphic terms. I made you aware of what happened. He said, I want you to know about Christ. I want you to understand the price that had to be paid. I want you to understand how God's fury against sin was dealt with in love and mercy and kindness by his sending his son. Dear brothers, especially as we're preaching the gospel, don't back off really presenting the cross in all its power and majesty. I love the song we were singing since we've been here concerning the cross. This is Jesus in his glory, King of heaven, dying for me. Sometimes we can't preach about the cross because we don't feel it strongly enough. 
I want to encourage you. I'm just reading, nearly finished again, reading uh, John Stott's Cross of Christ again. I thought, I want to read it again. I just want to get it into my soul more, get more aware, more angles and perspectives and awareness so that the cross is captivating my heart and I can present it to people. I want to encourage you, we must present the cross of Jesus. Here we find Philip is presenting the glory of the cross. Are you doing that? We need to be doing that, presenting the cross of Jesus. Philip is presenting a Jesus who was crucified. What kind of Jesus? Well, one who died on the cross. But secondly, a Jesus with good news of a kingdom. He preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Philip was speaking of a phenomenal event. The reign of God has broken out. He came with amazing news. As these guys are scattered, they're saying, God's reign has started. Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the one that God said he would send. He is now sitting on David's throne. He is the authorized king. He's full of the excitement about the reign of Christ having started. The rule of God has begun. And the resurrection is on virtually every page of New Testament preaching. They glory in a resurrection. It's not enough to kind of teach, well, the story lives on. They didn't preach, well, Jesus was so wonderful that, well, we can't think of him as dead. We somehow think he's still alive. We know that modern uh, times, liberal teaching will often say that. Well, we don't actually believe in a resurrection. We still have to face the reality that death is ultimate. But he is so wonderful. And, uh, and some have said, well, it's not about uh, just a physical resurrection. That's irrelevant. That's not the point. Jesus lives on. It's rather like Martin Luther King, that he had a dream. And he's dead, but the dream lives on. And many have seen it in those days. Well, Jesus said such sublime things. He taught such phenomenal things. Surely his wonderful concepts of kindness and mercy and forgiveness and generosity, that's so pure, it must live on. That's okay for a 21st century philosopher, but I don't think it's enough for Peter and James and John who saw him crucified. That's never going to work for them. He has been demonstrated to be a fraud. There's no answer from heaven. There is no... God breaking in, rescuing his son. He's there saying, why have you forsaken me? This is a tragedy. He's shamed. He's abandoned. He's humiliated. He's disgraced. He's disowned. He's trashed. That's the end of a dream. It's over. Forget it. We've got to understand that the death of Jesus is the end of the story for these guys. It's not just somehow he swooned and, well, he, we just escaped him out of the, out of the tomb. We're talking about a complete disaster. We're talking about someone who claimed to be messianic being obvious fraud. He's dead. Supposed to be David's great son. David went out against Goliath and killed him. Jesus goes out and no, no, he's not. It's like Goliath took him and killed him and hung him up. He's a death. He's dead. It's all over. These guys going out saying, he's not only alive, he's reigning. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's omnipotent. This wonderful savior that we love so much who died, which is public knowledge, 
He's alive. Philip's going with this news. The kingdom of God is started. Romans chapter 1 says he's son of God with power through the resurrection from the dead. A terrific statement of his lordship, heralding a completely new day. He didn't just escape, he's exonerated, he's vindicated by God. He is the authentic king. And Philip went with this message. He is the Lord. He's using words about Jesus that Caesar would love to take to himself. Son of God, saviour of the world. Now this is Jesus in his glory. He's risen, he's full of power. We find each of the Bible preachers again and again says, no, he's alive. He's risen from the dead. His kingdom has started. And the most frequently used Old Testament passage in the New Testament, Psalm 110, speaks of him sitting on David's throne. He's sitting on the throne. So he went out preaching the kingdom of God, preaching the rule of Christ, preaching he is the Lord, he's king. And then thirdly, a Jesus who had not lost his power to heal. Like Stephen, we see this with Philip. Philip is preaching, and as he's preaching, we see amazing things happen. You find in the, script, in the text it says, they responded when they heard and saw. They didn't just hear, they saw. As with Stephen, they heard a message, they saw things happen. I believe God wants to put these two men before us as provocations to us. But that's how God wants it to be. That they hear our message and they see the implications of this rule, this mighty Jesus being alive from the dead. They go hand in hand with both of them. We're finding that's how it is for us more and more. I thank God for the Front Edge program. I thank God for what Lex has brought to us in pushing us, encouraging us. Many of you guys who have come in together with Front Edge in terms of preparation, training, exhortation. Now go for it. Pray for the sick. Do things you didn't do before. And so many here can say, I never dreamed it was possible. I'm amazed that when we preached it and laid hands on people, they got up, they got healed, they got well. And yet we didn't preach it before. We didn't do it before. And gradually we're doing it. And so when we go to New Day, Adrian Holloway's up there. There's 6,000 kids out there. He says what he's going to do. He prays a prayer. And I stood there in absolute wonder as scores, scores, literally, of teenagers run forward to say, I was healed when he prayed for us. And we've got... Doctors there saying, no, let me just hear about it first before we get any testimony out. This is authenticated. And these kids getting healed, they're going back to their tents praying for one another. But Jesus is alive. He's amongst us. That was not our perspective a few years ago. Recently we had a conference in our church in Brighton. And Joel asked me, Dad, will you do a teaching on healing? And I thought, you know, I've never ever done it. I've never preached on healing all these years. So I had to get down and prepare a sermon on healing. <laughs> never done it. I've never taught that. All these years I believed but not taught it. And I felt God saying, come on, proclaim my word. Tell about Jesus. Tell about the Bible, Jesus. And I found that since then and other times speaking out about this biblical Jesus, things start happening. I want to exhort you preachers, speak out about the Bible, Jesus, and see how God owns it. Faith begins to arise. 
Hearts begin to get stirred. Possibility begins to dawn on people. We must declare it. We must proclaim it. We must preach the Jesus of the Bible. I was reading one of the commentaries I read in preparation. It says in it, He preached Christ, not healings and miracles. So there's that kind of, in many of our commentaries, a certain fear and nervousness that we get off on a tangent. You know, he didn't preach healing, he just preached Christ. It says so in the text, he preached Christ. So don't get into all this stuff. But it's amazing, at the end it says, uh, so they were baptized. Both it says that of the Ethiopian, it says that of the Samaritan. So they're baptized. But it's funny, if you look in the text, he didn't preach baptism according to the text. He just preached Christ. And they said, "Uh, I've got this amazing idea. I think I should be baptized. Where'd you get that idea from? Amazing concept. Baptized. Where'd you hear of that? Do you think maybe Philip mentioned it, but it doesn't say so here? Why would the Ethiopian say, hey, I could be baptized? He didn't say it. Why did the Samaritans say, hey, we could be baptized? No, it says he preached Christ. What sort of Christ? Well, the biblical Christ. Not the Christ of our modern thinking. The biblical Christ, the sort of Christ that Peter preached, we're told about him in Acts 10, 38. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. That's the longer, that's, that's the slightly enlarged, he preached Christ. That's the way Peter preached Christ. He presented him as he was in the Bible. He said it as it was. People don't suddenly come up with the idea, "Mm, maybe I should be baptized. Would that be a good way of responding? He must have said it. Why did people get healed? I want to suggest to you, because he told people what Jesus was like and what Jesus did. He didn't just present substitutionary atonement alone. He preached Christ, the biblical Christ. And we get the results that follow. Faith, we're told, comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. What did they hear? Paul says in Galatians 3 verse 5, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, Paul's arguing with the Galatians about the place of law. You know the background. Paul has preached the gospel. People have been saved, they've been flooded with God, amazing things have happened. And then the Judaizers came in behind him and said, well, we're so pleased you've received the good news. Now, if you want to really please God, you must be circumcised, you must keep the Sabbath, you mustn't eat that kind of food. They're they're trying to complete what's lacking in them by completing law, getting them to embrace law as well. And Paul is furious It's his angriest letter. What on earth are you playing at? What are you doing adding those things? And he's arguing about law. But it's fascinating to see the way he puts it. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? What he's saying is, look, you had miracles happening among you. How did that happen? You heard with faith. What did they hear? They heard what Paul said. What did Paul say? He must have said, Jesus performs miracles. 
Jesus heals the sick. That's what it's like. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. He's either healing or coming from a healing or just going to do a healing. You cannot read the Gospels without seeing Jesus is constantly healing. He's battling. He's breaking through. He's performing healings all the time. And to preach Christ without mentioning it is being strangely selective. And we shouldn't be surprised that we don't see much happen. I want to encourage you preachers, take courage to say more. I believe that's what God's been helping us with front edge and these things. Say more. Commit yourself more. Take the bold step. Say, God, grant to your servant boldness. While you stretch forth your hand. And signs and wonders are done in your holy name. I do believe in this post-Christian era, there needs to be a breakout of the supernatural because we're back to Bible days. And I believe if we will give ourselves to it, we will find, as it says in Hebrews 2 and 4, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. Sometimes we're saddened and shocked by what we see and we feel, I'm not happy with the teaching, I'm not happy with the preaching that often goes hand in hand with those who emphasize signs and wonders. I feel uncomfortable. Well, beloved, the best answer is let's preach it like it is and believe. Let's trust God for it. I want to encourage you. Let's go for it with all our minds. Next we see he was a Jesus who expects a wholehearted response. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but we see in each case they're baptized. There's a a thoroughgoing. It's not casual. It's not careless. Baptism would have been a massive social thing to do. Breaking away from your past. Becoming thoroughly identified with Christ. It's always been the big barrier for people. Let's believe that people will respond wholeheartedly. He baptized them. We want people to, for the joy, like that story of the person who found a pearl of great price, just turned away from all the other pearls. Or the guy who finds treasure in a field. It says, for joy, for joy, he sells everything else that he's going to have this. We want people to be absolutely besotted with Christ and his kingdom. To be wholehearted. Not just to bring the barrier down, but to say, now come on, rise to what God has for you. A wholehearted response. Baptism is mentioned both times. I just want to underline it as an important part. And then fifthly, a Jesus who could bring joy to the city. The outcome of the arrival of the gospel is there was great joy in that city. Result of the scattered refugees. It's amazing. Sad refugees, no, glad, happy, overflowing refugees, bringing joy to the city. wanted to say quite a bit about city. Uh, Mark said it far more eloquently yesterday, the vital place of our getting into cities. I thank God for our prayers last night, for those going on into Paris, the work that's going on in Dubai, Dublin. God has put on our hearts to bring the kingdom to the city. And just to remind you, rather than to restate what was said yesterday, God wants us touching cities today. God wants us involved. God wants us giving ourselves to this, prioritizing, strategizing. I believe it's God getting hold of us, 
Very often when we started, certainly when New Frontiers started, it was very much like just going up the road to the next town. That's how it all got started for us, historically. Like a strawberry plant. It just grew out, grew out. Oh, go to another town, another town, another town. Just following as the way God led. But more and more, God is saying, no, no, no. I want you to be far more strategic, far more focused. I believe God's putting that upon us. It was in our hearts. I believe Mark has brought it to us with terrific authority and insight. Let's keep going for it. I won't restate it. God wants our tragic cities with their multiplied problems of abuse, muggings and killings, shootings and knifings, suicides, troubled cities. The gospel must break out in our cities. I'm so proud of our guys who are getting stuck in, starting church plants in cities, bringing joy, not just bringing religion. The kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. He brought joy to the city. And then last of all, a Jesus with the nation's in mind. We find here Philip has this extraordinary guidance in the midst of seeing many saved, this great evangelistic breakthrough. God takes him out uh, to speak to one Ethiopian. God rescuing this guy. It's interesting. uh, He had gone up to the city. The Ethiopian had been up to Jerusalem. It's interesting. Africans come to cities. Our cities are full of people who come from other nations. They come searching, they come to be educated, they come to find what's there. We need to be on our toes to see what God will do with those coming in. I'm so thrilled that uh, here in Brighton this uh, year, so far this year, among uh, we've had many English or, Europe, uh, or uh, British people baptized, but already this year we've baptized six Chinese, one Indian four Nigerians, two Koreans, one Brazilian, and two Ugandans this year already. God would love to see that with many zeros after it. See more and more and more because we can catch people as they come into our city life, often coming for education, sometimes refugees. Are we on our toes for guys coming and going, coming and going? God is looking to our expansion to see what he will do, to bring in a people for himself from all the nations of the earth. And if uh, this Ethiopian read on, he's reading in Isaiah 53, but if he kept on reading, I wonder if you're familiar with what it says in chapter 56. I'm sure he did. I bet he got a lovely surprise when it says, Uh, in Isaiah 56 and verse 3 let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say the Lord will surely separate me from his people don't feel you're separate don't feel you're on the edge God is looking for a multinational church he's looking for a church of every tribe and tongue and people not a separate but part of the family we far off English guys Don't forget, when Isaiah wrote this, it wasn't written in a British church. It's written in a Hebrew nation. The far off, even crazy people like English, weird people over there. We far off foreigners. We have found our way. Hallelujah. He includes us in. We didn't know. We were outside the covenants, outside the promises. Now right in the family of God, right in the household. No longer outside. That's what it's promising here in Isaiah 56. It goes on to say in verse 4, For thus says the Lord to the eunuch, 
who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me, hold fast my covenant, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. God's going to bring in those who seem unacceptable, those who seem thoroughly disqualified and bring them right into his family. God wants us to go from here full of expectation, full of promise, full of hope. He wants us to go like Philip went, learning what it is to play our part in the family, well entrenched in church life, serving, taking our place, learning the importance of church, releasing others, having a good first half, qualifying ourselves. As Paul said about Timothy, he was held in honor. He was held, he was held, in, he was held in respect, held in respect in, but he proved himself. Young guys and girls, prove yourself. Show yourselves excellent team players. Don't insist on rapid promotion. Say, no, I'm happy to serve. Prove yourself reliable. Don't say, what about my ministry? No, learn that lesson well. When Philip's seeing the breakout and Peter and John came in, it's so tragic when a guy gets more visibility and then cannot handle that kind of pressure. Who do you think you are? This is mine. No, no. He'd learned it early on. No, it's not mine. God bless you. May God help us to have that attitude to build with humility and grace. It's not mine. It doesn't belong to me. This ministry doesn't belong to me. It's God's. If we can have that spirit difference, if we can have the spirit of openness and saying, whatever God wants, we can build with durability. We can build without cracking open and breaking away. We can keep going without people saying, no, I insist, I'm off. Who do you think you are? No, no, come on. Let's keep in harmony. As we go from here, as we have this year before us now, let me encourage you, walk in humility, walk in grace with one another, make space for one another. Don't ins- love doesn't insist on its own way. It doesn't defend its own patch. Philip had learned those lessons. God could entrust him with a phenomenal breakthrough extraordinary breakthrough. God could entrust him with seeing when Peter and John come in and they've got more to offer somehow. They've got another sphere that he didn't even understand about Simon maybe. He, was, he wasn't on, on clear. These apostolic guys came in and said, hey, if you don't sort that out, you're in difficulty here. You can't do this alone. Philip says, of course I can do this on my own. I'm a cool man. Look, signs, wonders, paralyzed. What do you want? He said, no, come on in. Come on, guys. I need your help got that attitude? Learning early to play your part, say, staying with that attitude of heart. Not saying, well, that was when I was younger. Now, I'm a signs and wonders guy. Now, here's the paralyzed getting up. What do you mean? No, no, come on in. Come on in. Can you have that attitude? Come on, guys. Show us. We need more. We're not complete here in ourselves. Come on, Peter. Come on, John. Step in. Not only that, hey, it's yours. And suddenly, woof, he's whisked off. He's away. He's going down to this one guy. We ready for that? We ready for those kind of transitions from high profile to hidden? It's easier the other way around. Philip's got a willingness and a passion for individuals so great. Passion for the gospel so 
flexible, so available. We're going to be like that. Lord, whatever you want, I just want to serve you. What more can you want? Just say, Lord, whatever you want, that's what we'll do. Is that in your heart? Making space, making room. We're just uh, The pastors have just had a, another remarkable time with Mark this morning and talking about some church situations which get a little closed in because, well, actually what's happened is a guy who's actually a, kind of number two rather than a number one, but he's led it this far and he's kind of hit a plateau and he's working at it and loving everybody, but that's it. And the biggest need he has is to make space for someone who can be a number one to lift this thing now. But that is so hard. Hey, this is mine. I've done this. This is my work. But if you can find grace for it, say, come, can you come and take this on? Will you do that? Some of us have really got as far as we can go in our gift. We've got as far as we can go. Now, you can either be proud and say, but look what I've produced. Or you can say, Lord, I just want your will. Can you come in? I'll serve you. I'll, I'll, I'll let you take the lead. I'll, I'll tuck under. It takes humility, dear friends. It takes a humble heart. Because it can feel, is this failure? No, it's different. It's a different gift. You can be fulfilled. You can play a part that's far more effective. We can read all the books about gifts and power and management. If you haven't got a heart that will humble itself, you can read, doesn't matter how many books you read. It's learning to say, it's yours, guy. Move in. It takes courage and humility and faith. Will I lose myself? Will I just die? It's like dying. Jesus said, well, if you can lose your life, you'll find it. If you cling to your life, you'll lose it. If we're going to grow more rapidly as we've been exhorted to, if we're going to see breakthrough, it's not just about reading the clever books. It's not just getting the techniques. It's about heart attitude. It's about willingness to make flexible changes. What seems like dying, so like Jesus, to find your way through. To be a team player. Say, okay, no, you go. You, you go. I'll... But wow, you mean you step down? Yeah. Wow. If any of that could characterize us, we could hear a few stories among the churches. Have you heard he stepped down? We did what? Well, actually, he really felt the other guy maybe. Now, I know some that have done that today. It's wonderful. It takes a lot of grace. Can I say to wives, maybe it takes even more grace for you. Sometimes the man is finding grace for it and, and you might be jealous for him. I say, well, what about his reputation? It's my man. He works so hard. If only you knew how hard he works. And you're asking him to do what? Is he going to get the honor he should get? I mean, this wouldn't be here if he hadn't done this. You want to come in and do what? He's labored over all these guys. These people, they wouldn't be here if he hadn't really shepherded them, found them. Hey, and sometimes... Wives, you can feel it more intensely. You want to protect your man. I want to encourage you. Just trust. Let's say, God, your kingdom really does come first. We could see not only Philip's in the Jerusalem church. We could see phenomenal breakthrough. And not only that, we can see another generation of four daughters have learned and somehow come up under that attitude. 
They've learned from a household where there is no striving. There's peace and joy. I want to urge you, dear friends, will you pay that price? Will you say, okay, not just as exciting, but maybe God's speaking to you. You say, that's so costly. Would that mean me going back into secular work for a while? It may be. That's big. But that may be necessary for the kingdom. And Philip is just such a wonderful guy. We saw Stephen, he literally lost his life. This guy laid down his life so that others could fulfill. And God gave him a tremendous ministry. This famous man. It's not just about platform evangelist. It's about character. It's about building for God. It's saying what comes first is the kingdom. It's also about being besotted with Jesus. So excited about the kingdom. Just telling, telling, telling. He's running. They're running for their lives. We've heard about refugees. Just hearing Edward talk about what happened in Kenya this last year. It's horrifying to hear about these guys running. For us, it's kind of Bible, but, you know, that's what happened. They're running. There's no home anymore. They could be just thinking about me. How are we going to eat? How am I going to raise my family? What am I going to do? Where am I going to live? How am I going to get some money? What's going to happen to me? Do you know, Philip's not even thinking that way. He's preaching Christ. He's filled with the knowledge of God's will. He can't stop shouting, He's alive! The kingdom's broken out. Jesus is on the throne. It's, bro- it's happened, the long-awaited kingdom. It's come. He's alive. He's so excited. He's talking about an amazing thing that's happened on planet Earth. Jesus Christ has conquered death and is reigning over the world. You better find him. He's full of it. God help us to know such a passion for him that every opportunity, this is spilling out of our lips. And with real courage, we talk about the whole Jesus. With real courage, we keep pressing back the borders and say, this Bible Jesus... This one who began, as it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 1, I'm going to write about this Jesus. I wrote to you before about what he began to do and teach. Now I'm continuing to tell you what he's doing and teaching. He's doing and teaching. They heard and saw. Let's be hearing and seeing kind of guys. People say, wow, look at that. There's a generation out there that needs to say, what is that? What is going on here? What you mean? How did that happen? We've got stories to tell. Now that's not triumphalism. It's on the back of a stoned Stephen. It's not triumphalism. It's in the, living in the light. There's martyrdom. There's a guy who's gone. It's not saying always works out easy. No, no, no. It'll be tough. There'll be setbacks. But preach the whole Christ. Let's do it. Let's go for it. Let's stand to pray. Can the musicians come up? Father, we thank you so much for your wonderful son in all his majesty and glory. We thank you, Jesus, that you stood in our place. We thank you paid the price. We thank you have been exonerated, vindicated, enthroned. You sit a king. Lord Jesus, we honor you. We pray, Lord, as we scatter, as we scatter from here, yes, even back to 
continents far from here, cities and nations. We pray, Lord, may we go flooded with the good news of Jesus. Lord, I ask you, please help us as we listen again to CDs and downloads of outstanding teaching in seminar after seminar, training track after training track. As we listen again, as we share it with our friends back at home, we ask you, I pray right now, we pray together in Jesus' name, let all that you have said do us good. Let not one word fall to the ground. Please deliver us from short-term thinking that we were blessed there. Lord Jesus, you said you're blessed if you do these things. And we just pray as we go, let us, Lord Jesus, be diligent to follow up everything you've said to us in these days. Lord, we say it to your glory. We pray, help us to do it. Be glorified through us as we press on into the promises you've set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.